Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. If we haven't met, uh, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church, and um, it's so good to see all of you. Um, If you weren't here last week uh, and you're a TLCC person, As you would know, Sharon and I returned from a four-month sabbatical slash study intensive last week. If I didn't get to say hi to you, I hope to have an idea, an an opportunity to say hi to you today, and I want you to know how great it is to see you, how great it is to see everybody uh, as we're returning here. And so um, I'm going to take the next little while here today, 40 or 45 minutes and uh, offer a teaching. And you have to, you know, be merciful on me because I'm out of practice and trying to learn how to do this again. Uh, But I promise I'll do my best. Okay. Uh, So, this past summer, uh, part of what Sharon and I were privileged to do was to spend some time in Florence, Italy. Curious how many of you have been in Florence, Italy? Uh, Good for you. It's It's a really really a wonderful place, and we were able to, to experience some wonderful things, including, of course, the glory of Florentine food and drink for which Tuscany, and particularly the Chiani region of Tuscany, which is just a few miles outside of Florence, is famous. Um, idyllic restaurants, uh, what you would dream of is the reality. What I did not know was that the Florentine meal that's most famous, a Florentine meal, is a gigantic steak made for at least two. This is the smallest size served in most restaurants, truly. Now, I had had a pizza as an appetizer. I wasn't completely expecting this, but Sharon and I did share, truly. They're, 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 it's not, pasta's not their thing. There's a lot of pasta, of course. But this steak made of a particular kind of white steer is their thing. Anyway, I'm back on my diet, uh, <laughs> which is sad but needed. So what, what makes Florence, of course, most special is that it's the seed bo- seedbed of the Renaissance. And everywhere you go, you see the brilliance of the Renaissance displayed. You see it in in the architecture, the statuary, the piazzas, the fountains, the copious art displayed in its museums and in many other ways. I was particularly struck by an art show celebrating the work of Donatello, one of the fathers of the Renaissance, and some argue the greatest sculptor who ever lived. Now, I'll confess that I wasn't really that familiar with Donatello. In the first service, I asked how many people were, and like everybody raised their hand, and I felt stupid until later someone stopped me in the lobby and said, Teenage Ninja Mutant Turtles. So... Now I understand why the first crowd appeared to be so smart. But anyway, uh, I got an idea how important Donatello is when we saw his work displayed in the Bargello Museum, uh, the Bargello National Museum, particularly in a room that displayed his seminal Madonna and child, a painted terracotta relief dating all the way back to 1440. It's beautiful. This relief is considered to be a keyword seminal work 
because it inspired a number of other artists over many years to do similar work uh, featuring Mary and the baby Jesus. And a number of these works were displayed in this room on loan from museums from around the world, including within eyesight, of Donatello's um, Madonna and Child, we could see Michelangelo's uh, Virgin and Child and uh, the infant St. John the Baptist, uh, which uh, Michelangelo uh, created in 1590, about um, 25 years after Donatello's death. And it was fascinating to see the work of someone, now I may not have known that much about Donatello, but I'm pretty familiar with, with the works of, of Michelangelo. To see Donatello's work, which is the inspiration of Michelangelo's work, and to see that work in the background was interesting. And as you walked around this room, uh, you, you saw all of this great art, all of it, all of it, fashioned after, inspired by the seminal work of Donatello, including this by Michelangelo, and not only that, but um, uh, perhaps you've been, I've had the privilege of being to the Church of Our Lady in Bruges, Belgium, where one of Michelangelo's most famous works is displayed, the only Michelangelo piece of art outside that lives outside of Italy actually is also inspired by Donatello's work and that's called Madonna and Child. It's a sculpture made out of a single piece of marble. You probably have heard of this uh, whether you realize you did or not because it was stolen a couple of times including by the Nazis and it was recovered by the monuments men and uh, again you may not know about art but you know about the teenage mutant ninja whatever they are and the movie the Monuments Men featuring uh, George Clooney and Matt Damon and Bill Murray and some other people. They, not George Clooney, but the real people all those years ago, recaptured Michelangelo's uh, masterpiece. So enough art history. I don't actually know that much about art history, though. I find myself fascinated whatever I learn about it. Here's what struck me about all of that. Donatello's work was considered seminal because it inspired so many other artists to reproduce similar works and, to my untrained eye, even in some cases, better work, including and especially Michelangelo's work. Something that is seminal reproduces after its kind. It plants the seed that multiplies an abundant harvest. In this case, a harvest of sculptures. So again, I'll say it again for those of you taking notes. Something that is seminal reproduces after its kind. It plants the keyword seed that multiplies an abundant harvest. Harvest. So, seminal has to do, of course, with seed. It, when planted, reproduces. We talk about a seminal work, a seminal moment, a seminal idea, a seminal discovery, a seminal invention. This speaks to the power of a seed. We could also talk, of course, more literally, forgive me, but it's important, uh, to the actual root word of seminal, semen, which when planted in a, by a father in a mother, causes conception and reproduces life, a person. 
I want us to think about the potentiality of seed. And then think about the parable that we began to discuss last Sunday where Jesus told about a farmer who planted seed that had in it the potential to reproduce a harvest many times its singular self. A harvest 30 times itself. A harvest 60 times itself. A harvest 100 times itself. Jesus said that the seed he was talking about was the seed of the Word of God. Or as we taught last week, according to the original language of this text, the Greek, literally, the sperma of the Word of God. The seed of the Word of God. And the Word in Word of God comes from the Greek word logos, which represents a huge idea in Greek thought that has to do with the very thoughts of God. The seed of the word of God is the sperma of the logos of God. The very thoughts of God when spoken in the beginning that created the universe. The very thoughts of God incarnated in the God-man Jesus Christ when the word or the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. So, we can talk about the power of a seminal sculpture and be inspired by that, as I clearly am. Perhaps you had to be there, but nonetheless, it inspires me. But the seminal work that I want to talk about today is what happens in the life of a human being when the seed of the Word of God is planted in their heart and reproduces the DNA of God the Father in that person. And I want to talk about how to put ourselves in a position to receive that seed so that all of its potentiality can be released in our lives. And we're going to get at that by going back again for the second week to the parable that Jesus told about the parables. Last week we started a series that will go on for the next couple of months where we're going to dig into a number of the parables that Jesus told and try to ascertain what he meant and why it's important to our lives. Well, the first parable that we're treating is this parable about the parables. This is where Jesus told a parable about why he told parables and explained to us how we can get the deeper meaning that are found in the parables. Here it is, Matthew 13 Verse 3, then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Really important to this whole thing. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To which the disciples said, why are you speaking to us in parables? Why don't you just say a thing? 
And Jesus answered like this, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. We'll pause there. I'll make a comment about that. Through the telling of parables, Jesus is, a, is revealing the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to those who want to understand them. And at the same time, he's concealing the secrets of the kingdom of heaven for those who don't want to pay attention enough to understand them. The desire he has is for a person that becomes clear from the text, and we taught about it last week, is for a person to engage their will in such a way that they understand what it is he's saying. In other words, they have to focus, they have to pay attention, they have to look, they have to hear, they have to try to understand it. And he says, the person who does that once they begin to get understanding, the understanding is just going to flow freely. It's going to keep coming. The person who starts to get that is going to get more and more and more of it. On the other hand, the person who says, I don't care, I'm not listening, I don't have time, I'm not going to really pay any attention, what's next? That person, whatever understanding they might have, is they're going to experience the law of diminishing returns. They're going to have less and less and less of it. He's wanting to explain the secrets of the kingdom of heaven and the key to whether or not somebody can receive it is simply whether or not someone's willing to really pay attention and then he says though seeing they do not see quotes from isaiah 6 a prophecy about those who hear but don't understand though seeing they do not see though hearing they do not hear or understand in them is fulfilled the prophecy of isaiah you will be ever hearing but never understanding you will be ever seeing but never perceiving for this people's heart he's talking about people's heart in, in all of this for people's heart has become calloused they hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes otherwise they might see with their eyes hear with their ears understand with their hearts and turn and i would heal them but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear okay so he said that in response to what he said that in response to his disciples saying why do you speak to us in parables so let's just deal with that real quickly i talked about it at some length last week if you're interested and weren't here you might want to go back and hear it first of all jesus spoke in parables because he was a master communicator and clearly a story captures something in people's hearts that more didactic teaching doesn't and jesus did both he told stories and he also taught some things in a linear fashion but the fact is, a story is compelling, and somehow or another, we can hear a story told and grasp something in our hearts, even if we can't articulate what it is we understand, we somehow we get it at a really deep level. So Jesus was a great communicator, and he told stories. But more importantly, and explicit to this text, what he actually said is that he told parables, and I repeat myself, which... If you're not accustomed to my teaching, I will frequently do because I'm saying a lot of things and I will like to circle back every once in a while and not assume everybody's tracking with things that I've been thinking about a lot, okay? And, and you haven't because it's not your job to think about it. I've, I've, anyway, 
So I'll repeat myself. Don't think I'm confused. I'm being intentional here. He told parables to reveal truth to those who want it and who would focus on it and to conceal truth from those who didn't want it. Now, again, he's telling his disciples that he wants to give them the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven or insight into God's kingdom. In other words, through telling parables, he wants to tell people how to function in this new reality that Jesus has brought to earth called the kingdom of God. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven in his gospel. Mark, Luke, and John call it the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. This isn't heaven somewhere out there. There is a heaven somewhere out there, but he's saying, I brought heaven to earth. It's called the kingdom of God. There's a, there's a new sheriff in town. And Matthew in his gospel to this point has been hammering home, and maybe we'll get into this next week if anybody's still awake by then, but he's hammering home that G, John the Bat, ba, Matthew starts with John the Baptist saying, the kingdom of heaven is here, and it's him. Jesus. And then Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is here, repent. And Jesus is talking about how he brought the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God to earth. Okay. And now he says to his disciples, if you'll pay attention to these stories, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you insights into this kingdom, this new reality. I'm going to tell you how to live in this new thing that happens when the kingdom of heaven comes to earth until God's will is done in earthly situations as it's supposed to be done in heaven, which is a prayer that's been prayed so far in Matthew. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says, I want to tell you about that. But you have to focus in order to get it. The more you focus, the more you understand. The less you focus, the less you understand. He who has will be given more. He who doesn't have will be given less. This is an incredibly important principle. Now, the specific seed that Jesus is talking about, again, the specific seed he's talking about sowing is this Is this is this idea that the kingdom of God has come to earth through Jesus and that seed Jesus planted here in Matthew, here in the gospel during his lifetime, that seed was planted in a handful of disciples but was so seminal that it now has multiplied into billions of followers of Jesus over 2,000 years. But this is where he started. He started by planting the seed of the kingdom of God in just a few people but it's multiplied, 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 and it's going to keep multiplying, multiplying, multiplying. But for this seed to be planted and germinate and grow and reproduce, the disciples, Jesus is telling them, have to be good soil. They had to want to understand it. They had to want to see and hear and understand with their hearts the meaning behind his words The more they tried to understand, the more they understood, the less they tried to understand, the more mysterious and bumbled and strange-sounding his words were to them. So Jesus is wanting people to have to pay attention to get the insights that he's bringing them. And I I, I like the connection uh, conceptually between the, 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 the physics or mathematic science, I've seen it both ways, Uh, behind a parabolic microphone or a parabolic uh, uh, lens and the idea of the parabolic teachings of Jesus. A parabolic mic helps you 
hear things you wouldn't normally hear. A parabolic lens helps you see things you wouldn't see. And the parabolic teachings of Jesus, if we'll pay attention, will help us hear and see and understand things we would otherwise miss that are of infinite importance. So, Jesus then interprets this parable, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time today. This is, uh, I misspoke last week, actually. Um, I said this is the only parable that he interpreted. In fact, I think he interpreted two, but I may next week come back and say I misspoke, he did three. But anyway, it's more than one. Uh, But he interprets this parable, he interprets it because he wants them to understand, this is the key that unlocks the rest of the parables. So, Uh, here's his interpretation. He said, listen to what the parable of the sower means. Matthew 13, 18. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. I can't convey to you how important, well, every word of what Jesus said is. But note here, he doesn't say the person who's a bad person And the seed of the word of God was sown. The evil one came and stole it out of the bad person's heart. Jesus was sowing the seed of the word of God to a lot of bad people who were going to change from bad people to good people. It wasn't about that. The key is they didn't understand it. They didn't understand it. Which I'm going to talk in a minute about the remedy for that. But but, But the point he's really trying to make here is they have to want to understand it. Okay? And then he goes on, I'm way ahead of myself, and says, uh, he says, this is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful, but the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So let's talk about parabolic possibilities, problems, and promises. Parabolic possibilities, problems, and promises. First of all, let's talk about the possibilities of the seed. To restate, when we truly receive the seed of the word and allow it to grow in us, it produces multiplied results. It is seminal. This begins when we first hear the word and believe. When we believe the word that we hear, the gospel of the kingdom that is preached to us, the seed of God is planted in us, and we are born again. Peter said in his first letter to the church, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. We're born again, how? By the seed of the word of God. And Jesus also told us that when we're born again, or Jesus told us, that was Peter saying that, when Jesus told us that when we're born again, we're able to enter and access a whole new reality an entire new dimension of life called the kingdom of God. John chapter 3, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again, 
And no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. The moment we believe the seed of God is planted in us, brings us life, causes us to be born again. All of a sudden, we're, we have the possibility of seeing a whole new reality, a whole new way of living, a whole new dimension of life. And we have the possibility of actually entering that, accessing that, living within that. But that's just the beginning. I believe that every time we hear the word of God and believe it and receive it, that the seed of the word is planted in us again and again and again. And this seed produces kingdom results in our lives in many ways. Here's a taste of that. There's some language in this next passage of Scripture that I particularly like. I'm not going to get to really dig into it, but hear this if you would. Peter's second letter to the church, he said, his, the divine, the, his being Jesus, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. You know what? Would you do me a favor and humor me by saying the words divine power? It just kind of feels good. Just think, think about that. His divine power has what? Has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. So, the possibilities inherent in the seed of the Word of God being planted in us includes that within it, His divine power has provided everything we need to live the life God dreamed for us, and that we actually participate in his divine nature. And then he goes on and he lists some qualities that are manifest in our lives as a result of this, and he closes that, this little peroration like this. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words... If, 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 these, if this thing's growing in you, you're going to be effective and you're going to be productive. How do we know that the seed of the Word of God has been planted in us? We're effective. We're productive. We're doing it in a way that it's utilizing divine power and it's in alignment with divine nature and the effectiveness and the productivity is reflecting good things that come from God into our lives, and into our world. What does it look like when the seed of God re reproduces the divine nature in you and through you? I mean, it sounds kind of like some ethereal, conceptual, interesting thing, perhaps, but what, it, what, is it, what does it really look like? This has incredibly practical implications for our lives. I just throw out a few thoughts about the potentiality of the seed in us. Well, so think about the fact that the seed of the Word of God is planted in us. That the Word or the Logos is the expression of God's thoughts. So when the seed of the Word of God is planted in you, you begin to think God's thoughts after Him. The Logos often, when spoken, has creative power to bring form and structure. So it is in the beginning when God spoke the Logos 
Chaos became created order and beauty. And so it is that when the seed of God is planted in you and grows, it begins to bring order and beauty to things that may have been formerly chaotic in your life. This is the same logos that created the world. This is the same logos that was manifest in the body of Jesus Christ. The seed of that has been planted in you. Think about Think about what it looks like then to live in alignment now since this is really ultimately all about the kingdom of God living in alignment with the kingdom of God in such a way that his will is being done in every area of our earthly lives as he intended it to be in heaven. By the way, this Friday night at our believers meeting, um, which I know was communicated about earlier, I'm going to do a, 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 a little teaching and we're going to pray through the Lord's Prayer. And for my money, the thing that always fires me up the most about the Lord's Prayer is that is, are the implications of the prayer that says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What would it look like for the kingdom of God to come to you, to your family, to your business, to your finances in such a way that the will of God is being done in you and through you just as God determined for it to be done in heaven? What is it like to live with the reality of the seed of God growing in you in such a way that you are truly seeing and accessing the realities of the kingdom of God in every area of your life? How does this affect your marriage? How does this affect your leadership? How does this affect the way that you think and deal with money? How does this affect your sense of meaning? One of the things that we know uh, is that the, 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 the seed of God in us, when it's planted, produces the fruit of the Spirit. This is very explicit in Scripture, right? That when this is growing in us, we're growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is something the Spirit is doing in us when the seed of God begins to grow in us. But we're not just growing in the fruit of the Spirit. We also now have the capacity, in fact, we all have receive some gifts of the Holy Spirit as well. Jesus wasn't just a nice guy. He was a powerful guy. And sometimes people think, you know, I'm going to become a Christian. Maybe God will help me be nicer. He, and, and, and he will, because you probably need to get nicer. But more, even as much, he's going to help you become more powerful. Not so you use power for your own ends, but so you use your power like Jesus did to serve people who need powerful people who are moral people to show up and impact their lives. So it's not just the fruit of the Spirit, it's the gifts of the Spirit. Everything from the working of miracles, 1 Corinthians 12, to the gift of leadership or administration or the, of helps of the bottom line is when when the seed of the word of god gets planted in you think divine power think divine nature think supernatural effectiveness think supernatural productivity this isn't just some you know well that's a nice idea no this is an idea that will get worked out in your life and rock your world and rock the world of the people around you in the most positive way imaginable but this much is certain 
You only know you've received the seed of the word when it's producing results in and through your life. All right, let's talk now about the problem of the three unreceptive souls. So, soils. So, we've talked about souls would be appropriate to. Uh, we've talked about the possibilities of the seed. I want you to get an idea. This is something you might want to really focus on, guys. Okay? This is like, all right. What is necessary for the seed of God to get planted in you and do this stuff? You have to be good soil. And the soil here, of course, is referring to the heart. And before he mentions good soil, Jesus mentions three unreceptive soils. We'll organize them like this. First of all, we'll call, call it the, the first soil, the hard heart. The hard heart. Matthew 13, 18, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom, now I'm just going back and rereading through the interpretation of the parable that Jesus gave. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand that the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart, this is the seed sown along the path. So this is the person who hears the word and just doesn't get it, and this is key, who doesn't really have any interest in getting it. Their heart is like an unplowed surface. It's a path, not a furrow. Um, and and y- you may say, well, you know, Pastor Terry, that's a, a, a little unfair that I don't understand what it is I'm hearing, to which I would say that I understand you saying that. Jesus, the message he's trying to offer here is not that you have to get it the first time you hear it, but you have to want to get it enough to see, hear, grasp it with your heart, turn, which is part of what's in this text here, and so he can then do the things he wants to do in your life. There has to be a want-to thing, and this is necessary to not be a hard-hearted person. Then the soil can become receptive when we start saying, I, 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 I want to understand, I want to believe, I want to get this. As soon as you start saying that, the Holy Spirit starts working in your life in a way where all of a sudden the person who has a little starts getting more and more and more and more. But on the other hand, the person who says, eh, bored out of my mind, can't take it, not interested, let's go see if the Yankees are actually going to win the division, which is another matter. We'll pray about that at the believers meeting probably. But, But anyway... I just lost all the Mets fans. You guys are doing pretty good. God bless you. You're, I'm rooting for you too, kind of. But, uh, you, you know, I just, if you, somebody's just saying, you know, I don't care. I don't get it. Well, well guess what? You're not going to get it. And you're like a person, the seed falls someplace where it can't possibly grow. Um, a cautionary word to all of us, though, uh, sometimes believers who receive the seed of the gospel initially get in a place where they can no longer be easily receptive to the word. They become hard soil, hard-hearted. Sometimes folks will misguidedly blame this on their supposed spiritual maturity. It's like, I already know so much, I don't think I can know anymore. I'm so smart, I can't learn from anybody else. I, I, don't, I don't know that I need this. I'm, 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 I'm not growing. I'm not, well, listen, the prob- when that's going on, the problem is not the sower, the problem is the soil. When, when we're good soil, we're showing up 
every Sunday, regardless who's teaching, and we're showing up to our devotional lives during the week with, with a heart that says, I want to understand, I want to learn. I understand if I have a life that I can actually have more. So there should be a constant building on the th- continue unraveling of revelation and insight in my life. We show up with that kind of a heart. Something uh, last week that just absolutely thrilled me after being away for four months is uh, I, was, I was in the lobby and talked to many of you, probably hundreds of people last uh, Sunday, and uh, folks were kind and nice. Thank you for the fact that, 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 that we're back. But I heard so many good things about the teaching this past summer in my absence. And that thrilled me. It said something about the sowers, the people who were broadcasting the seed of the Word of God. And it says a whole lot about the soil that it's being cast to. See, I never ever want us to be the kind of church that says, we're so whatever, smart, mature, far along, spiritual, whatever, that we're not humble learners who always come to any opportunity to get any seed of the word of God that's sown, and we're not engaged in taking notes and learning and so on and so forth. Okay, here's the second soil. It's the shallow heart. Matthew 13, 20, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, when life happens, because of the word, they quickly fall away. This is the person who hears the word and is at first overjoyed, but the joy doesn't last. How many times in the many years that I've been doing this have I had very well-meaning people come up to me after their first or second or third or fifth time here, oh, this is amazing. These aren't hard-hearted people. These are, these are people, they, 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 they really want it and are interested in it. They're so, they receive it with joy. This is the greatest thing I'm learning so much. This has changed my life. I Oh, I just, oh, thank God and thank this church. And six weeks later, you never see them again. It's a person who received the word with joy, but they didn't put roots down. So what happens? Life happens. Uh, uh, We face a triumvirate of enemies who are very real. Our own sinful nature, though legally dead, still kicking in there, right? And so we deal with the stuff in our own lives. And then all the stuff in the world, the craziness of the world around us that takes us away. And then then actually the evil one who comes and tries to mess with people who are making spiritual progress. This is very real. We don't wrestle just against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers of darkness. And what happens then is whatever started to grow in that person, Jesus said it's like the sun scorches it, and because there aren't roots, it dies. You have to develop roots in order for this thing to work in you. How do you develop roots? Well, there are a lot of things we could talk about, but a simple thing would be you have to develop good spiritual habits. You have to show up with a heart to learn. You have to engage in the life of a church. You you need to begin to practice daily spiritual disciplines on your own, learning to pray, getting engaged in devotionals. It doesn't have to be our plan. Any plan's fine with me. Reading spiritual materials that are helpful to you. Obviously, reading God's Word. Developing strong relationships with other believers. This is why we have life groups. Finding a place to serve in community. Using your gifts to serve, uh, which we, we do that in something we call 
small life teams. This is part of how we develop deep roots. Here's the third thing. And this is the thing that I think is more real than any of the rest of this probably to the majority of us in this room. It's the choked heart. Matthew 13, 22, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. This is the choked heart. Mark in his gospel has Jesus telling the story and including the words, the desire for other things. Luke in his gospel has Jesus probably telling the story in another setting, saying it's life's worries, riches, and pleasures that choke a person's heart and strangles the seed of the word. The great Dallas Willard offered something that I think can serve kind of as a rubric under which to look at this uh, at. He, he referred to all of this together as the anxieties of the age. I don't think I actually need to do a whole lot of explanation by what we mean by the anxieties of this age. It's just everything. The anxieties of this age are so distracting that even though God's word has been planted in, in, in us, it gets choked out because we're so distracted. And man, there's a lot of stuff. Hey, I, uh, I, I, I read a lot over the last few months. One of the things I read, a really a, 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 a nice book, um, an interesting book, is a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And he said a lot of stuff. I just mentioned a couple things. Again, there's so many different ways we could talk about all of this, but let's attach uh, the anxieties of this age to the crazy busyness that we all exist in all the time, just trying to make it and succeed and raise kids and coach little league teams and build a business and whatever. The anxieties of this age. He wrote, Michael Zigarelli from the Charleston Southern University School of Business conducted the Obstacles to Growth Survey of over 20,000 Christians across the globe and identified busyness as a major distraction from spiritual life. And he digs into that some and talks about how that this continues to build on itself. The busier you are, the more distracted we get, the less we're focused on God, the busier we get, the more distracted. The, 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 it's either growing or it's dying. You're either getting more of God stuff or you're anyway. And then he says, and pastors, by the way, and he's a pastor, according to this survey, are the worst. He rated busyness in the pastoral profession right up there with lawyers and doctors. Guys, um, this is important only in terms of maybe personal narrative connection. Uh, part of why I felt such a need to do a true sabbatical for the first time in all these many, many years is because I've been intensely engaged every day some seems like 24 hours a day because I dream about it. I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it with everything about what the Apostle Paul called the cares of the church, right? Lots of great, some, sometimes it's just adrenaline flows of good positive stuff. And then it's dealing with negative things and, you know, all, all the stuff that we deal with, we deal with in our lives. I, I determined that I was at a place in my life, I needed to shut it down for a while and be unbusy that I needed to do, pardon me, I needed to not do, I needed to be. 
That if I was going to continue to get up here and feed this congregation and sow the seed of the Word of God, I needed a time where I was engaged in my relationship with Jesus without it being wrapped up in my identity as a pastor. I was just, I was interested to see what would happen. I didn't tell anybody for the better part of, you know, traveling all over the place. People asked me what I did. I told them I'm an author. I didn't tell them I'm a pastor. That messes everything up. When you tell people you're a pastor, they start asking you about the Antichrist and they start asking you about... All kind of stuff. And so anyway, I didn't tell you, I didn't want to be a pastor. I, guys, I'm be frank. I didn't drive by the church for four months. When I drive by the church, my pulse starts racing. For a lot of good reasons and sometimes not good reasons. This is life, right? We, it, all of us have our own reality like that somewhere. Okay, so I'm not claiming to be unique in this. I'm just saying that I knew I needed a season where I made sure that my identity wasn't so wrapped up in being the pastor of the Life Christian Church that I just, I just needed to shut it down for a while. And I did, including I shut down social media for four months. I haven't looked at social media. I deleted the day I started my sabbatical. I deleted every social media app on my phone. I haven't looked at social media for four months, which is great. I could go the rest of my life and not do that and be a happy guy. I will re-engage social media because I think it's something a pastor needs to do in this era and certainly an author. Trust me, my publisher wants me to be good at social media and I'm really not very good at it. But anyway, now I shut it down and what a fascinating thing. You know, guys, um, Comer says that 2007 is a year an inflection point in human history similar to 1440 when Gutenberg developed the printing press because 2007 is when the digital age entered. And all of a sudden, the anxiety of the age gets put on a smartphone where we are constantly bombarded with every good, bad, and ugly thing happening in this world. Let's face it, a lot of it is not good. It is a terrible distraction where all of a sudden now we are obsessed with this and um, the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day. And that's for all smartphone users, even older guys like me. A study on millennials put the number at twice that. We're attached to this thing that, that bombards us with the worries of this life in many ways, right? Right? How many things do you see on social media that make you feel better about life and cause you to think about Jesus? How many texts do you get? <laughs> we were in London this summer hanging out with uh, our, our son Christian and daughter-in-law Amanda, and um, uh, we're touring all over the place, and Amanda, she now, it's like as, as if she's lived in London her whole life. She knows everything about the city. Every back alley, every train to get on, every taxi anyway. So one of the things we did is we looked at the refurbished Big Ben. I think this is the largest clock face in the world, if I'm correct. Um, I, every, I have to come up every week and make corrections, so, uh, but I think that's the largest clock face, beautiful roll watch. It's gorgeous. We're standing there looking at that. And I was thinking about the smartphone thing in my millennial kids. And, and I said, knowing what would happen as we're looking at that clock face, I said, Hey, Christian, what time is it? And this is what happened. He looked at his phone. (laughs) We are 
And then some of you, God bless you, you've put it on your wrist. Honestly, I need to start preaching against this. Non-stop bombardment of information, non-stop, including social media. You know the average person spends 705 hours a year on social media. That's 29 days. Do you know what you could do with 29 days? And just one other thing while I'm on the subject. I'm going to wrap this up pretty quickly here, and we're going to receive communion. Uh, There's also a research project that Comer uh, uh, gets into just about how much time people spend on things that are distracting. We spend a lot of time on good things and important things and necessary things. All of us do, but we also spend a lot of time spending 29 days a year on social media. Can we all agree that is just absolutely... That is choking the word stuff that is distraction from focus on god stuff that is time that could be used in something like helping make sure that your heart is in a condition where you're focused in a way where the seed of the word of god is growing in you hey the average guy spends ten thousand hours playing video games by age 21. You've seen the research. Everybody knows it now. You can master almost anything in 10,000 hours, right? You can learn a new language in 10,000 hours. You can get a bachelor's and master's degree in 10,000 hours. You could memorize the New Testament in 10,000 hours. Or you could beat level four of Call of Duty. I think you get my point. What do you mean Jesus told this parable 2,000 years ago about a, we don't know what a farmer is, sowing seed, that doesn't make any sense to us. Good soil, you know, soil that, 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 that cares of this life and it comes in. You, you, but, but it's easy to identify with this now, right? Here God is wanting to share his divine nature with you. Wants you to access his power. He wants you to live in the realities of his kingdom. He wants the kingdom of God to be ruling every part of your life. Right? But we're so busy with all this other stuff that the one thing we have to do in order for the seed of the word of God to grow up powerful in us is to focus. And that one thing, the desire to dig in and understand we're too busy with all kind of other ridiculousness to do. And Jesus says, let him who has eyes see and let him who has ears hear. Because if you really want to, you can see. And if you really want to, you can hear. And if you really want to, you can understand with your heart. And then you could turn and I would make you whole. And wouldn't we have a great life together?